the chairman, brethren and sisters, in the Lord Jesus Christ. As our brother James has reminded us, in our last class we considered the childhood and youth of the Lord Jesus Christ. We saw how he was, a, a, through his childhood and youth, he continued to increase in wisdom and in maturity of mind and in favour with God and man. We believe throughout his childhood and youth the Lord was a particularly observant and perceptive young person observing what was going on around him at all times. We learn that as we look at the teaching of his later life. The parables and the methods of teaching the people show us that he had an accurate knowledge of the work of fishermen, of the shepherd and his relationship to his sheep, of the vine dressers and their work of caring and pruning the vines and of making the wine. He had a good, uh, uh, accurate knowledge of the of fig trees, of the sower and his seed, of the practice of building. We find he was also familiar with the aspects of the home. He could speak of the way in which you don't patch, uh, you don't sew new cloth into an old garment, showing that he had an accurate knowledge of the art of patching and darning uh, worn clothing and so forth. And so as we see the Lord speaking in these ways, we can imagine that through his youth, He was particularly observant of all that was going on around him. He wasn't just content with looking at a few sheep in a field. He wanted to know how the shepherd looked after them. He wanted to know something of the relationship that existed between the shepherd and his sheep. Was he looking at a vineyard? He would be particularly observant and gaining an accurate knowledge of how the vines are pruned and how the husbandman gets the maximum fruit from his vine, and of how the fruit of that vine is uh, turned into wine, and so on and so forth. And so he was very observant and perceptive of those things, not only in his knowledge of the word of God, but always he was looking at things and relating them to that which is revealed in the word of truth, so that he was able to see the lessons, at all times and in later life was able to use those things as a method of teaching to those who would listen to his words. But as the Lord was thus growing and developing in the quietness of Nazareth, the world at large was sinking into deeper and deeper darkness. Luke chapter 3 and verse 1 introduces us to the world as it was at the beginning of the ministry of John the Baptist and of immediately after that of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. We read now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip tetrarch of Iturea and the region of Trachonitis and Lysanias the tetrarch of Abilene. 
Luke is an accurate historian. (coughs) And in this verse, no doubt, he's trying to pinpoint the date of the commencement of the ministry of John the Baptist. But not only the date, probably far more important to us really. He's painting us a picture of circumstances that existed in the world when, the, when, the, the, uh, when John the Baptist commenced his ministry. Notice how John embraces the whole of the Roman Empire. But not John, Luke embraces the whole of the Roman Empire. It's characteristic of the Gospel of John, Gospel of Luke, I don't know why I keep calling him John, characteristic of the Gospel of Luke, that he's showing that the work of the Lord Jesus Christ wasn't exclusively for Jews, but was for the whole world, all who would believe uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ and embrace him. And so he paints for us a picture of circumstances as as they existed in the world when the John the Baptist commenced his, his, his ministry. Without going into a lot of um, details of the uh, um, various rulers there, on the sheet that was given you, we've quoted a little, taken a little extract from the story of the Bible, volume 8, page 73. And it describes to us in a few words the conditions that prevailed in these days. This verse describes a dark hour in Judah's history. Those words are our own. The quote starts in the next statement. In Rome, the infamous Tiberius ruled, shocking that wicked city by his excesses. In Jerusalem, the weak, cruel, insolent Pontius Pilate held sway, maddening a fanatical people with his extortions and massacres. In Galilee, Herod held court, presenting a vile example of ungodliness and lust. In the temple, Caiaphas and Annas divided the functions of a priesthood which they disgraced. Throughout Judea, lesser authorities ruled by corruption or destroyed the principles of religion by a cold formalism that robbed Yahweh's truth of its power. map we've just roughly drawn a map of the divisions of the land in the days of the Lord Jesus Christ showing where these various rulers reign. In Samaria and Judea that we have over on the right hand side of the map here, left hand side of the map here, we have uh, Samaria and Judea were under the Roman governors. Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea. Uh, the, the, the apostle tells us that Herod was the tetrarch of Galilee. You notice Herod Antipas, that is, was the tetrarch of Galilee up there where Nazareth was. The Lord Jesus Christ was one of his subjects. He was also tetrarch of Perea, the section down there just to the east of the Dead Sea. And so Herod Antipas ruled over those two regions. And we find his brother Philip was tetrarch of Iturea and the region of Trachonitis. We see that over to the uh, 
to the east of Galilee there, east of the Sea of Galilee. And uh, Lysanias was the tetrarch of Abilene. Abilene you'll see right up the very top of the map, it's right up to the north of the land. So that's how the land was divided up in that particular time. And that quote from the story of, of the Bible has shown us something of the character of these men who ruled at that particular time. He shows us conditions that prevailed in the world at large, in the Roman Empire, ruled by Tiberius, described by some as a very uh, 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 weak and uh, bad ruler. In Judea, Pontius Pilate was governor. Those who have read the history of the times will will, 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 will recognise that Pontius Pilate in his rule over Judea continually inflamed the antagonism of the Jewish people by, as that quotation says, by his uh, massacres and extortions. Herod, of course, Antipas was the one who had John the Baptist beheaded and put to death. It uh, speaks of the character of that particular ruler. Philip, ruling in Aicheria, was a much more just and level-headed ruler. He was probably the best of the family of the Herods. And in verse 2 we read that Annas and Caiaphas were the high priests. And as Brother Mansfield says there, they were ones who disgraced the office. They were hard, cruel, ruthless men. They were both Sadducees. We learn from the 23rd chapter of the book of Acts that the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. Their philosophy was to get the best out of this present life. So obviously with an attitude like that there wouldn't be much sacrificing of present things for the glory of the future times. And so that paints a picture of the political and religious conditions prevailing in the land of Judea. You see, some 27 years had gone by since the angel Gabriel visited Zechariah in the temple and visited Mary in the town of Nazareth. There would be few in that land who would still remember those events that took place then. It was really only revealed to a very few at the time. But people like Zachariah, Elizabeth, uh, Anna, Simeon uh, and so on and so forth would have gone off the scene by now. They wouldn't still be there. There would be very few who would remember the, the events that took place at that time. And it would seem as if a silence and a darkness were settling over that land. But unknown to the nation at large, there was a young child being prepared up in the town of Nazareth. But not only up in the town of Nazareth was preparation taking place, because down also in the wilderness of Judea, a young man was being prepared for a great work. We read in that second verse of Luke chapter 3 <coughs> that the word of God came unto John the son of Zacharias in the wilderness. 
Now in in chapter, in verse 80 of chapter 1, speaking of the child John, we read, and the child grew and waxed strong in spirit and was in the desert till the day of his showing unto Israel. So probably through his young childhood days, he grew up in the house of Zechariah and Elizabeth. But Zechariah and Elizabeth, being well stricken in years at the time of his birth, doubtless passed off the scene when perhaps he was in his youth. We don't know, of course, we're only guessing. Possibly he grew up under their tender care and instruction through his childhood days. And in the days of his youth, they fell asleep in death. And John secluded himself in the wilderness and was there in the desert until this time when the word of God came unto him, instructing him to commence his ministry. Why did John go into the wilderness? You know, I believe in John we have an outstanding example. John was a child who was born. He was was born a child of destiny. He had a very great work set before him. Zachariah and Elizabeth would have been careful to impress that upon him in his young childhood days. He had a very great work before him. And John was a young man who gave himself 100% to prepare himself for that work. 100%. His life was totally uncluttered by other interests. He was a man who sought nothing for himself, but that he might sit at Yahweh's feet in the quiet solitude of the wilderness and learn the pure message of Yahweh's truth unaffected and untouched by the philosophy of man. That man chose a hard life. Away from the comforts this world can offer, he had a very humble life. His table wasn't graced with the types of food that we enjoy. He had nothing but the very humblest of food, locusts, and wild honey. And he gave himself 100% to prepare himself for the great work that was laid before him. None of us, brethren and sisters, have got a work before us equal to that of John. But we are called to be bond slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. What are we prepared to sacrifice? to prepare ourselves for that work. What comforts are we prepared to give up that we might serve our Lord and Master the better? Indeed, there's an outstanding example in that young man, John, through the days of his youth, when the contemporaries of his own age in that land, no doubt, were wanting to roar down the streets in the flashiest chariots in town, Uh, occupying themselves in all manner of other fruitless and profitless pursuits. But here was a young man prepared to despise all that this world could offer 
and to give himself totally to prepare himself for the work that God had set before him. Indeed, he's an outstanding example. And yet, for many years probably, John was secluded in the wilderness in that way, giving his time to the study of Yahweh's word. Much time probably in prayer, much time in meditation, time also observing the hand of nature around him, preparing himself for that great work to which he had been called. But suddenly in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, we're told in verse 2 that the word of God came unto John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And so John was out there in the wilderness, living upon the humble food that the hand of Yahweh provided for him, giving himself to study, to prayer, to meditation, when suddenly the word of God comes under John and instructs him that the time has come for him to commence his ministry. Now in the first chapter of the Gospel of John, we read of something that that voice said unto John. John chapter 1, in verse 33 verse 32 and John bare record saying I saw the spirit descending from heaven like a dove and it abode upon him and I knew him not but he that sent me to baptise with water the same said unto me upon whom thou shalt see the spirit descending and remaining on him the same is he which baptiseth with the Holy Spirit And so you see, it was the voice of God came to John and told him to go forth and told him to baptise with water and told him that as he was engaged in baptising with water, one day one would come unto him and he would see the Spirit of God descending and resting upon him. And he says, he it is that is the Messiah. And so the word of God came unto John revealing that unto him and revealing to him that the time had come when he was moved out of the wilderness and he must start his ministry, that he must start baptising with water because by that very means the Messiah of Israel was to be manifested in their midst. Now when we get to this point where we come to the commencement of the ministry of John, we find that we now have to harmonise three Gospels together. Because in Matthew chapter 3, (coughs) Matthew refers to the commencement of the work of John in preparing the way of the Lord. In Matthew chapter 3, well the whole chapter really is is, is parallel to to Luke chapter 3, but it just starts in those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea. So Matthew gives us a parallel account to that of Luke. And likewise, when we go to Mark chapter 1, we find that the Gospel of Mark now also enters the narrative of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Mark chapter 1 and verse 1, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. 
the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John did baptise in the wilderness and preached the baptism of repentance for the remission of sin. So it is, it is at this stage that Mark's account uh, enters <coughs> the record of the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we now have the task of harmonising together Luke chapter 3, Matthew chapter 3 and Mark chapter 1. We find that it is a little later in the uh, outworking of events that the Gospel of John enters the scene, uh, historically that is. We find in John chapter 1, John likewise makes reference to the work of John the Baptist. Uh, in verse 29, for instance, of, um, of uh, uh, John chapter 1, we read, uh, The next day, that is the day after the deputation from the uh, priest to come to John asking who he is, he says, The next day John sees Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. But actually, this is referring to a later time to what Matthew, Mark and Luke are referring to at the present time. The Lord by this time has been baptised. He has been into the wilderness for the temptation. He has come back out of the wilderness and he has come back to where John is still baptising. And then John sees him coming and says, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world and the Lord Jesus Christ gets the first of his disciples. And so John enters the scene at a little later stage. But we will consider those things when we get to them. We learn here then that John, at the command of the voice of God coming to him, uh, moves out of his solitude in the wilderness and he comes into all the country about Jordan preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And we learn from Mark 1 verse 5 Matthew 3 verse 5 that his preaching work gained much attention and people flocked to hear his message. Verse 7 of this chapter says Then said he to the multitude that came forth. And so we see that the preaching of John although he stayed in the desert regions himself he never went into the towns and the cities nevertheless his voice penetrated we don't mean that in a literal sense, of course. His voice penetrated to all corners of that land and stirred up a great amount of attention so that many people came from all parts of that land to hear his preaching. His voice, of course, literally wasn't heard through the land. It would have only been uh, taken by word of mouth of others who heard him speak. But he, his voice created a great lot of attention and excitement in that nation at that time. When we consider the circumstances that surrounded his preaching, perhaps we can understand why that would be. You see, as we've indicated, a great darkness and a great silence, as it were, was, had settled over that land. And suddenly a voice breaks that silence. And you know, when something breaks the silence, it attracts attention. You know, darkness was settling over that land. And yet we read in John chapter 5 and verse 35 how John was a lamp 
He was a light, it says, or the word light means a lamp. He was like a lamp in the darkness. And again, a lamp in the darkness is something that attracts attention. Before, it was 400 years since a true prophet had spoken in the land of Israel. But now a prophet was in their midst once again. You see, when the people heard the voice and were attracted to go down into the Jordan Valley, to see this one who was proclaiming these things, they saw a man, as described in the words of Mark chapter 1 and verse 6, or Matthew chapter 3 and verse 4. Mark chapter 1 and verse 6 reads, And John was clothed with camel's hair, and a girdle of skin about his loins, and he did eat locusts and wild honey. And the very clothing and the very character of that man would attract attention and arouse thoughts in the minds of the people. You know, Elijah was one who was known by his clothing. Second of Kings chapter 1 and verse 8 reveals that to us. <coughs> and they answered him, he was a hairy man and girt, about, girt with a girdle of leather about his loins. And he said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. So Elijah was well known by the hairy, by the type of clothes that he wore and by the manner of man that he was. And in um, Zechariah chapter 13 and verse 4, we see that it became that the rough, hairy garment was looked upon as the characteristic clothing of a prophet. Zechariah 13 and verse 4 and it shall come to pass in that day speaking of the time yet future that the prophet shall be ashamed every one of his visions when he hath prophesied neither shall they wear a rough garment to deceive any more that's doubtless referring to the, to the present day clothing of the apostasy but nevertheless it shows us that a rough or a hairy garment was looked upon as the characteristic garment of a prophet. And now once again there's a person clothed in this way, bearing all the characteristics of, of, of Elijah. And he's down there by the Jordan River, speaking the word of God. And we learn from the Gospel records that the people accepted John as a prophet. You know, the Lord Jesus Christ put the Pharisees and Sadducees in a tight spot once and they asked him the baptism of John when did it? Is it of God or is it of men? And they feared they couldn't answer him because they feared the people because the people accepted him as a prophet. And the people saw in that man in his austere way of life in the clothing that he wore they saw a man who was a prophet indeed. You know, he was a man whose words were backed by his example. There were power in those words. Those words vibrated through the length and the breadth of that land. We learn from the book of Acts that those words, long after John had gone off the scene, were still having their effect in Egypt. They were still having their effect up in Asia. Because John's words were words of power. Because his words were backed by his own example 
But you know, John stood there on the banks of the Jordan, the exact opposite of everything that the religious and political character of that nation stood for. He was the exact opposite of the religious state of that nation. So let's just try and pause for a moment and can see what Yahweh was trying to do with his people at that time. We learn from Luke that John moved out of the solitude of the wilderness where he had previously been and he came into all the regions of Jordan. And we learn from the Gospel of John, chapter 1 and verse 28, that he finally settled <coughs> at a place called Bethabara. John chapter 1 and verse 28 reads, These things were done in Bethabara, beyond Jordan, where John was baptised. That's the place where the Lord Jesus Christ would have been baptised. Some translators render that Bethany. But we have here in the authorised version, these things were done in Bethabara, beyond Jordan. Now, Just marked on the map there, the probable place of Bethabara. You see it there, just uh, just north of the uh, the Dead Sea, on the east side of the Jordan. That's why it's Bethabara beyond Jordan. It was on the east side of the Jordan. We notice that just over the river from uh, uh, Bethabara was the place called Gilgal and Jericho, just close by, and uh, Jerusalem away to the west. And so John <coughs> moved down into this region of Bethabara and there he was baptising. Bethabara means the house of crossing. You know, it was the very place where Joshua led Israel across the Jordan into the land. You'll find that in the last stages of Israel's journey through the wilderness they, they'd been up in the regions of Bashan and Gilead and they came down south, down through the plains of Moab and then they crossed over the Jordan at Bethabara and and at Gilgal was where Joshua uh, circumcised the people and rolled away the reproach of Egypt. So John has gone down there into the Jordan Valley and he's right back there at the place where Joshua led Israel across the Jordan into the land. You know, the people that wanted to listen to John's preaching had to go out there. They had to go right back to the very place where Israel's occupation of that land had started. Surely Yahweh's trying to show those people that they've got to go right back to the beginning again and make a completely new start. Now there they are back down there by the Jordan, down in the rugged, desolate regions of the Jordan Valley at that part. You know, both, all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, all identify the work of John the Baptist with the fulfilment of Isaiah chapter 40. In Matthew chapter 3, Mark chapter 1, Luke chapter 3, we find the apostles 
stating (coughs) that John's work was the fulfilment of Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3. And in the Gospel of John chapter 1 and verse 23, we find John the Baptist himself applying Isaiah 40 and verse 3 to himself. Because when the deputation from the priests came unto him and they said unto him, Who art thou, that we may give an answer to them that sent us? What sayest thou of thyself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as said the prophet Isaiah. And so all four of the Gospel records unite in telling us that John was fulfilling the words of Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3. And when we go back to Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3, we see the prophet was foretelling the coming of the forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3 of Isaiah chapter 40. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of Yahweh, make straight in the desert a highway for our Elohim. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain, and the glory of Yahweh shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of Yahweh hath spoken it. The voice said, Cry, and he said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all the goodliness thereof is the flower of the field. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, because the spirit of Yahweh bloweth upon it, surely the people is grass. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. And there we have the um, prophecy foretelling the work of John the Baptist, in preparing the way for the coming of the Messiah. The first words of verse 3 read, The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness. You know, in the Revised Standard Version, Rotherham, the Revised Version, and, 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 and probably many others, the punctuation of that verse is put a little differently. The Revised Standard Version, for instance, reads, A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare ye the way of Yahweh. Rotherham likewise says, A voice of one crying. In the desert prepare ye the way of Yahweh. You see, the, 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 the emphasis of that verse seems to be not upon the fact that the voice is coming out of the wilderness, but it's outlining the wilderness as the place of preparation for the preparing of the way of Yahweh. You know, when we take this back and relate it to the work of John, it doesn't really make much difference which way you read it. It's the same. John's work was in the wilderness. But you see, the people had to go out into the wilderness to listen to his preaching. John didn't go up and down the streets of Jerusalem. He didn't go into the towns of Judea. He was in the region of the Jordan, down in the in the, the uh, harsh, barren regions of the, uh, of the Jordan, they're down just north of the Dead Sea, where the, the, the valley is some 1,200 feet below sea level, and the hills tower up uh, 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 upon the sides. There in those barren regions, 
was the place where John worked and the people had to go out into the wilderness so they might be prepared for the coming of their Messiah. You know, it's very beautiful the way that Yahweh was working with those people at that time. He was teaching them. But if they were going to be uh, prepared by the work of John, they had to separate themselves from all the cares and involvements of this life. They had to leave behind the cities with all their pride, with their idle pleasures, with their fleshly involvements. And they had to go out into the wilderness, right down into the Jordan Valley, to the very place where Joshua first led those people into the land. You know, when a community of people go out into the wilderness, they're all brought to an equal footing. The rich and the poor stand side by side. There's no difference between them. The low and the high, the crooked and the straight and so on and so forth. They're all brought to the same difference. You see, you can have two two men. One might have that much money that his bank book's not wide enough to to write the amount in. You can have another man who hasn't got two cents to rub together. Take them out into the wilderness and what difference does it make? Neither of their bank books are worth anything anyway. They're both on an equal footing. You have a person that lives in a beautiful mansion and another another person lives in a little one-room Humvee. Take them out of their houses and out into the wilderness and what difference does it make? They stand side by side on an equal footing. You see, you can have one person that's clothed in gorgeous robes, glorious apparel, but put him out in the wilderness and those clothes are nothing but an encumbrance and an embarrassment. And the man that's girt with a camel's hair coat and a leathern girdle stands beside him on an equal footing. So everybody was brought down to the same level. They were all brought face to face with the realities of life. And there they were confronted by the prophet of Yahweh. And what did the prophet of Yahweh tell them? He says, all flesh is grass. He says, look, human life is vanity. Human striving and human achievement, it will all be brought to nothing. He says, forget your involvement in the cities and all your hampering after worldly investments and so forth. Forget it all. It's all going to pass away like the flower of the grass. He says, but look, the word of God abides forever. He took them away from their worldly involvement. He took them right down into the depths of the Jordan Valley. And right down there he brought them face to face with a true prophet of Yahweh. He took them right back to the place where they had originally crossed that river and entered into the land. And Yahweh was trying to show that people that they must turn their backs upon the worldly influence that had entered in and gripped them in that land. They must come back to the start. They must make a new beginning, giving their minds to the precious word of Yahweh. 
and Yahweh was showing them that they must separate from the involvements of this life so they must dedicate themselves to his truth in readiness to accept their Messiah <coughs> and so there down by the Jordan John commenced his preaching and for some three years John's preaching continued and people would be coming and going all the time down into that wilderness down to the Jordan you know they didn't just have to go down to the Jordan to get to John they had to cross over the Jordan they could to the other side of the Jordan to the east bank of the Jordan and there they would listen to his preaching there some would respond to his preaching they would manifest true repentance they would be baptised and then they would have to commence their journey back to the, to the uh, cities of Judah and they would have to cross through the Jordan back into that land retracing the steps of Joshua making a new beginning and a new start that's what John was calling upon those people to do <coughs> now coming then back to Luke chapter 3 we read <coughs> in Luke chapter 3 and verse 3 and he came into all the country about Jordan preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins when we harmonise this with Matthew we find that Matthew gives slightly different words <coughs> Matthew says in chapter 3 uh, in those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying repent ye for the kingdom of heaven is at hand and so Matthew says he says repent ye for the kingdom of heaven is at hand Luke says he was preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins and so we have to harmonise the two together. And it's not hard to put the two together. You see, the very basis of John's calling them to repentance was the fact that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So John was down there in the, in the wilderness of Judea and he was saying, prepare yourselves for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, therefore repent and be baptised for the remission of your sins. So that really is a summary of the preaching of John the Baptist as he commenced his ministry. Now let's take these statements one at a time. First of all we'll take the statement the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What did John mean? Did he mean that God's kingdom on earth was, was going to be imminently set up? Well we know that that wasn't the case. Now on the sheet we made a little comment upon Matthew chapter 3 verse 2 headed the kingdom of heaven is at hand and there we point out that the diablot renders that phrase the royal majesty of the heavens has approached. The word basilia is a footnote in the diablet comments and it can be checked with lexicons and so forth. The word basilia can refer to the power authority, majesty or royal dignity of the king 
as well as to his kingdom or realm. You see, and actually the, uh, um, the, the word uh, uh, basilia, the, uh, <coughs> I think Vine tells us that its primary meaning is sovereignty, royal power, dominion, etc. But it came to be used of the kingdom itself. And so you see, when we bear that in mind, we see that the words of, the, of John the Baptist as recorded in Matthew 3 and verse 2 really are, as the dialogue renders it, reformed because the royal majesty of the heavens has approached. So John wasn't crying out warning those people that the kingdom of God was about to be set up there and then. But he was proclaiming to that nation that God's royal majesty God's anointed king was in their midst and was about to be revealed to that nation. And that was the message of John and that 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 is the meaning of verse 2 becomes absolutely clear when we read verse 3. He says, For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. And so obviously Matthew is relating the work of John the Baptist to the preparing of the way of some important personage. And that important personage is of course the royal majesty of the heavens. It's Yahweh's anointed king who was even then in their midst and being prepared for his work. And so that was the cry of John the Baptist telling the people that the Messiah was in their midst and to prepare to meet him, to prepare to meet him. Now, we see associated with this is the word repent. He says, repent ye, for God's anointed king is at hand. And the word repent, of course, as we know, means to have a change of mind and purpose in life. I think Bullinger sums up the word as meaning to reform, to have a genuine change of heart and life from worse to better. And as we looked at the darkness and the, the uh, apostate state of that nation, we can understand the need for John in bold, forthright terms to call upon that people to repent to have a genuine change of heart and life from worse to better. Now in association with being called upon to repent, we learn from Luke chapter 3 and from Mark chapter 1 that he called upon them to be baptised. He says he came about all the country of Jordan preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. So he proclaimed the fact that the Messiah was about to be manifested in their midst. He called upon them to repent, to have a change of heart and mind, and he called upon them to be baptised. You know, John was a very courageous man. A very courageous man from the beginning to the end of his ministry. He lost his life in the end because of his courage in reproving Herod uh, of, of, of the adultery that he was committing 
But you know, he was a very brave man to stand up in front of the people of Israel down there in the Jordan Valley and call upon them to be baptised for the remission of their sins. You know, baptism was something that wasn't unknown in Israel at all. Baptism, in fact, was something that was commonly practised in Israel. But Jews weren't baptised. But any Gentile that wanted to become a proselyte of that nation, as he was inducted into that nation as a proselyte, would be baptised and the Jews would baptise them. They would circumcise them and they would baptise them so they might be cleansed and have all the defilements of the Gentiles washed off, washed away. But Jews weren't baptised. But you know, John stood down there in the Jordan Valley. He called the people back to the very place where their first entry into the land was made. He called the boy, he told them that Yahweh's anointed king was about to be manifested in their midst. He told them to repent, to change their thinking and reform their ways because he said, look, you have a lot of Gentiles and you won't need to be baptised. You need to have a complete change of heart and mind and ways in your life. He says, you're no better than the Gentiles. And he called upon them to be baptised. It would take a lot of courage, brethren and sisters, to stand up in Israel with a message like that. But John was equal to that task because John was thoroughly prepared for his work. John had given himself a hundred percent to prepare himself for the work that Yahweh had set before him. And so down there in the Jordan, John told them that they were no better than the Gentiles. They needed a complete change of heart and mind and they needed to be baptised so they might be ready and prepared to accept their Messiah when he appeared in their midst. Why did John call upon them to be baptised? It's called here the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. We turn over to the 19th chapter of the Gospel, not the Gospel, 19th chapter of of the book of Acts. We have a, we put it up on the sheet here, a little section on the baptism of repentance. But in Acts chapter 19 and verse 4, we read, uh, or, or reading from, uh, reading from verse 1, and it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul having passed through the upper coast came to Ephesus, and finding certain disciples, he said unto them, Have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? And they said unto him, We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Spirit. And he said unto them, Under what then were ye baptised? And they said, Unto John's baptism. Then said Paul, John verily baptised with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. So you see, it's quite evident from this section of scripture that the baptism of John was in no way a substitute for baptism into Christ. And people who had been baptised with John's baptism 
still had to be baptised again into the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, and, and, and the Apostle points out here that this baptism was merely a baptism of repentance. Saying unto the people that they should believe on him, that should come after him. You can, as we put upon the, the, the sheet there, we said baptism of repentance was no substitute for baptism into Christ. John called upon the people to repent, i.e. to change their thinking and their way of life in preparation for the coming of the Messiah. That was John's work, to prepare them for the coming of the Messiah and he called upon them to repent and be baptised in preparation. He called upon them to be baptised as a token of their conversion of their acknowledgement of their need to put the flesh to death and give their lives in dedication to Yahweh that they might be ready when their Messiah should come. That was the purpose of John's baptism. And it was in no way a substitute for baptism into the Lord Jesus Christ. But you see in Luke chapter 3 and verse 3 there, the Apostle says, he preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Now, the Greek word there, for, is a translation of the Greek preposition, theis, which really means unto or into. And when I think he's moving under something, he's going towards something. It was a baptism towards the remission of sins. It was a baptism towards the remission of sins in that it was preparing them to receive the Messiah when he would come. Remission of sins can only be gained through the Lord Jesus Christ. Not through any other means than the Lord Jesus Christ. And so John's baptism was a baptism of repentance directing the people towards remission of sins that they would gain from through the Lord Jesus Christ when he came. And the preaching of John was to direct the minds of the people to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ that they might be able to accept him and receive him when he came. But it was through him that the remission of sins was to be gained. And so it was a baptism unto the remission of sins. But once the Lord Jesus Christ had come and had manifested and had offered himself upon the stake, then those people needed to be baptised into the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, that they might be identified with the Lord Jesus Christ and that they might gain forgiveness of sins through him. And so it was the work of John to proclaim the coming of the Messiah and to direct the attention of the people to the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. But in instituting the rite of baptism, he was showing the Jewish people that they were no better than Gentiles. And they needed to completely change their ways if they were going to be ready to receive their Messiah when he came. And not only that, but through this very rite of baptism was the very means by which the Lord Jesus Christ 
was going to be revealed in their midst. And so Luke goes on in verse 4 of of chapter 3. He says, As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying, uh, crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain and hill shall be brought low. The crooked shall be made straight and the rough places shall be made smooth. That was the work that John the Baptist was given. To prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. You know, it wasn't a work of great earth-moving work. It was a work of preparing men's minds. Preparing men's minds to receive the Lord Jesus Christ when he would come. It was the work of bringing people to repentance, changing their thinking and changing their ways. And so verse 5 is figurative language. Every valley shall be lifted up. The low, the depressed and the oppressed would be lifted up every mountain, the high and the lofty and the proud of this world would be brought low. The crooked would be made straight. Those class of people that are always out to put it over someone, to make a quick dollar. People ready to bend Yahweh's way for their own personal advantage. They've got to be made straight if they are to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's figurative language. And as the Apostle, as John, the, the, John the Baptist, called the people out into the wilderness, there the very environment which we, if he was in would have tended to accomplish that very work as they stood there before John. The high and the lofty were brought down. The low were lifted up. The crooked were made straight. You know, the ones that are always out to, to bend the ways of Yahweh. The ones that are always out to pull the wool over someone's eyes and make a quick dollar. You don't find them out in the wilderness. They're in the cities. You don't find them out at the feet of Mother Nature. Because Mother Nature demands hard, straight, honest work. And that's where John called the people out into the regions of the Jordan Valley that he might call upon them to change their ways in preparation for the manifestation of the Lord Jesus Christ in their midst. You know, John, before he baptised people, he demanded more than just a just a matter of them coming to him, listening to him and then he pushed them under the water. You know, the Gospels of Mark and Matthew tell us that when people came to John to be baptised, they would not only listen to his preaching, but upon being baptised they would confess their sins. Mark chapter 1 and verse 5, And there went out unto him all the land of Judea, and they of Jerusalem, and were all baptised of him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 6 tells us the same thing. 
So before John would baptise a person, they had to come to acknowledge their need for baptism and repentance. They had to come to recognise that they were sinners, that they did need to change their ways and change their life. You see, John's work would have been absolutely pointless if a person didn't come to acknowledge that. There was no way in the world that John could prepare a person to receive the Messiah unless he could bring them to acknowledge their sins and to see the need of a saviour and to see the need to change their ways. And so John called upon them as they came to him to be baptised to acknowledge and to confess their sins. You know in certain cases also John demanded more than just a confession of the mouth to that end. Luke chapter 3 and verse 8 tells us of the way that he addressed many of those multitudes that came under him. He says, Bring forth therefore fruits worthy of repentance. And begin not to say within yourselves we have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children under Abraham. And so John called upon the people to bring forth fruits worthy of repentance. You see, he could see (coughs) that if those people were to be truly prepared and ready to receive their Messiah, they had to make a genuine change of heart. They had to genuinely come to recognise that they were sinners, that they needed to change their ways, that they needed saving from their sins. And therefore, to certain, those certain classes of people that came under him, he demanded that they bring forth fruits worthy of repentance, that they should be able to show in their lives evidence of the fact that they had changed their mind. And so you see, when the, uh, uh, that class of people that he described in verse 7 as a generation of vipers came under him, He wasn't prepared to accept just their confession by word of mouth. He said, under them what you say, you've repented. You confess the need to, to, uh, uh, that you're sinners and so forth. He said, let me see it first in your way of life and then I'll know you're genuinely preparing yourself for the coming of the Messiah. You see, John was a man who in his own life he backed his words by example. And he was a man who could stand before that nation and call upon them to do likewise. That's what gave power to John's work. And that's what attracted attention to John's work as the people came out of the cities of Jordan, out of the cities of Judea, and of all the land, And they went down into that deep abyss of the Jordan Valley. Right down there into the harsh, rugged regions of that land. And there they came face to face with a man whom they could see was a prophet indeed. A man who would remind them of Elijah of the past. A man who could back his words by his action and his way of life. A man who stood there as a complete antithesis of everything that that nation stood for at that time. 
and a man who could call to that nation to change its thinking, to change its ways, and to prepare for the royal majesty of the heavens to be manifested in their midst. We, brethren and sisters, live in a godless world. We live in a world in which the darkness is settling over it, thicker every day. We live in times when the royal majesty of the heavens is very soon going to be in the earth. And we must stand before him. We must stand alongside John the Baptist before the Lord Jesus Christ. In John the Baptist we see a man who gave himself entirely, who despised the comforts and the involvements of this life so that he might thoroughly prepare himself for the work that God had given him. As we stand beside him, brethren and sisters, how will we feel? Will you be satisfied with the way you've prepared yourself for the work to which Yahweh has called you? Will I feel satisfied with the way I've prepared myself? Indeed, brethren and sisters, let us take a good look at John the Baptist before it is too late.